Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. We are talking uh, about the NIT semifinalist Penn State Nittany Lion men's basketball team. We got the entire gang here tonight. Chad Markulix, how you doing? Doing well. Eric Gibson, how are you? Fantastic. And Dan Smith, what's going on? Well, I'm a, a little disheveled. He called me in for this uh, emergency podcast. I had something going, you know, it was pretty important. But, you know, I think it was important to have this emergency podcast with the you know, decommitment of Tolu Jacobs. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we'll be sure to touch on the, uh, the, the the decommitment of future Penn State Center Tolu Jacobs a little bit later. Uh, but in the meantime, it's probably a little bit more important to talk about the Nittany Lions uh, looking, you know, getting through three games, the NIT, two of them on the road, one at home and what was a pretty hotly contested game, uh, against Temple. Uh, Eric, do you want to just give like really quick recaps of all three games before we dive in and talk about some of the specifics and, uh, little things that happened in each of them worth mentioning? I mean, I, I don't know that we should just start with Temple, just go chronological, um, since the first round that they got matched up with Temple uh, by the NIT kind of added some some spice to the first round of the meaningless tournament that so many people hate on. Um, so playing Temple the first round, obviously, I mean, do, there was the whole Fran Dunphy comments that uh, kind of sparked a, not, not a whole lot of controversy because obviously everybody was filling out brackets um, that week in the college basketball world, but... Uh, Kind of made some waves in Philly and um, among Penn State fans when, um, honestly, I should pull up the quote. Does it, did any of you guys pull up that quote? I don't want to screw up what Dumphy's actual comments were. The special moves one? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the special moves, but I don't want to, like, lack context there. But either way, basically he insinuated that um, Penn State may have had some unethical recruiting practices um, in in the city of Philadelphia for the uh, the Roman Catholic kids that they got, um, which has kind of been a rumor that's been out from the Temple uh, fan base for quite some time, really ever since they they committed back in 2015. Uh, you know, various online rumors, just some people in the Philly basketball community have addressed it and talked about it and discussed. You know, um, are these kids getting paid? Because you know, obviously, there's that reputation in college basketball these days when you have the FBI probe, you know, underlying the entire sport. So everyone's pointing fingers at everybody. And of course, you know, you look at a school like Penn State basketball to pull the kids that they pulled out of that city, like Tony Carr. Tony Carr is not a Penn State basketball recruit. Um, it's not very hard to understand why opposing fans that are not supporters of Penn State would make the leap of, hey, you paid to get that kid. Um, so anyway, that kind of got all overblown. Um, I, I think Dunphy came back, somebody from Temple, uh, had Dunphy clarify those comments. He, he obviously backpedals that it's not what he meant. Um, Pat Chambers never really addressed it. Um, I don't, I don't think we had anybody at the press availabilities that week to confirm whether it was even asked to him. Um, I don't remember really even seeing anything about that. So, um, it was just something that kind of was fun for the fans heading up into the game just because Temple fans are so loud about how Penn State paid for these recruits. And um, we went and Penn State played a pretty terrible 35 minutes. I mean, honestly, it was a lot like the Northwestern game in the Big Ten tournament, I thought, where they kind of just were 
sluggish for 75% of the game, starting the game. Um, and then when they needed to, they strung together that incredible run. It was like 11 nothing or 13-3. to I forget what the actual count was. Uh, but they went from looking like they were going to flame out in the first round. Tony Carr was having a terrible game to um, getting the win and moving on. And, and now we're still able to talk Penn State basketball, and it's March 21st. Yeah. Um, the, the big takeaway uh, from that game for me, uh, I don't know about you. Well, there are really two big takeaways. One was just the immense performance that Penn State got out of Josh Reeves. Uh, 19 points, 11 rebounds. Uh, did all the stuff that you want to see out of Josh Reeves, but was a little bit more productive uh, than he normally uh, is. Uh, and two, Penn State was able to win a basketball game despite the fact that Tony Carr didn't have an especially good game, Chad. Uh, how did they end up doing that? Uh, defense, they kind of locked down on Temple and uh, kept the minute till the final couple minutes so they turned it on and, and got some offense going. Um, I mean, defense has been their calling card all season. It's not surprising that they would be able to lock down a team like Temple, who uh, frankly isn't that great. Uh, especially, you know, since the conference season started. Um, and then, you know, they just did enough to keep themselves in the game. And, and like you said, Josh had a fantastic outing that night. Um, you know, 19 points, 11 rebounds, um, just a terrific effort from him shooting pretty well through uh, four or six from three. Seems like maybe he's been getting some more shots up recently in the practice gym and maybe of anticipation of a, a turning pro, hopefully not, but, um, yeah, I mean, and they got good good minutes from Julian Moore and Nazir Bostic too. I, I thought they played really well. Um, Julian Moore went six of six from the line. That's that's got to be a career high without looking uh, at his career stats. Um, Nazir had twelve points uh, before his uh, ill-fated adventures in uh, the reefer of the weekend or after that game. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, just uh, pretty impressive last three minutes to. to you know, pretty honestly, is is impressive. The first fifty, or sorry, excuse me, forty whatever minutes. I don't know how long a basketball game is anymore. Um, Thirty-five minutes, correctly, is uh, it? You know, they play well enough, and then turn it on when they needed to, because that's how good of a team Penn State is. And Dan, uh, you know, Chad just talked uh, about how Penn State was able to put the clamps on defensively. On the other side of the ball, I mean, Penn State's offense. 36.7% from the field they shot, not too bad from uh, behind the three-point line, knocked down 35% of their attempts. But the big thing for me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, is how Penn State was able to, when the offense wasn't able to get things going, they just put their heads down and got to the free-throw line. Yeah, they recognized the way that the game was being officiated. Uh, you, you sort of uh, saw the light go on for a couple of guys about uh, you know the, the way that things were going. Um, you know, which I think it also you know, does sort of go back to Chad's point a little bit in that they, they ended up you know, putting the clamps down without fouling in a game where it was being called, you know, pretty tightly. And, you know, they ended up uh, getting to the free throw line over twice as much as Temple did. Uh, certainly, you know, that, that number's, you know, a, a little influenced by the, the end of the game. But there's no question that they, uh, you know, had the wherewithal and the personnel to be able to to play that sort of game there and use that as a way to dig themselves out of kind of the hole that their offense had been digging themselves. So, um, 
it was uh, it was you know certainly not a, a pleasant game to watch, but it was uh, you know sort of a, a uh, like you said, much like the Northwestern game, sort of a, you know rough start that you just get through. Uh, almost like a necessary evil is just you know playing one of these types of ugly games to you know get your feet wet and get you know, more comfortable with uh, with this tournament. So uh, you know they did they did exactly that. They did what needed to be done to win. And uh, you, you you know it's better to win ugly than to you know lose a game you know the way that uh, that Marquette did, where it's fun but you know it's uh, you know you come up short. Yeah, after the game, if I remember correctly, uh, Chambers compared. Uh, the physicality and the style and all that to a big five basketball game. So, uh, yeah, and kind of the last big thing that I want to talk about uh, with this one, and Eric, I want to go to you because you're uh, you're the person who has been fighting against this narrative the the hardest of, or, or was right after the game, and that was Tony Carr. Uh, 37 minutes, 1 for 12 from the field, uh, 0 for 4 from 3, 2 points on the night, but six rebounds, five assists, uh, three turnovers in 37 minutes. It, why do you think he didn't have as bad of a game as some people might have thought? Um, I thought if you would have compared this tape um, to some of the tape of obviously some of his other horrible shooting games that he's had this year, because there have been, unfortunately, there have been a lot. Um, I was really impressed and thought he showed a huge sign of growth. Um, one, staying engaged defensively, and two, relying more on his teammates. Um, I really think this whole NIT tournament, his passing has um, elevated to another level, not just to his buddy Lamar Stevens, but you know, commanding the whole team and spreading the ball around. Um, there have been so many times where, and he used to get hammered about this earlier this season, about how it used to become the Tony Carr show. Um, you know, he'd get tunnel vision every time he would dra- drive the lane and port- force up some really terrible shots. So there's no um, surprise that his shooting percentages were so low. This particular game, he went, he finished one for 12. Um, but I remember I watched the tape on this game for a couple reasons. One, I thought we were real time, I think, Everybody was um, impacted by how that game lacked any flow whatsoever. We, I mean, we haven't even talked about how the rule changes um, changed the style of game or the style of gameplay. And obviously the clock malfunctions that we all saw coming. Um, so this was a very unusual game going into it, um, which led to the slugfest. I mean, it was just an ugly college basketball game. We see You see so many ugly college basketball games throughout the course of the year. I don't think there's anything particularly bad about this game on the replay it was just how frustrating it was with all the timeouts and the clock malfunctions um so the car went one for 12 or whatever but the other thing with those 12 shots i feel like at least three or four of them were two shots on the same possession where he would miss the first shot they would get the offensive rebound and he would put up another shot and you know that's not to try to justify that like um you know, he, that he's okay missing those shots. I think it's just more, I'm trying to say, his usage percentage for that game was only 21%, which if you look at his game-by-game stats, I'm sure that's definitely on the short end um, of his usage stats for the season because he's oftentimes have been 35 40% um, of the team's possessions because he's just forcing the issue so much. So I was impressed with the fact that he wasn't scoring, he's playing Temple, there's all these expectations that he's just going to, blow them out of the water um, because 
of all the accusations from Temple fans about how he's been paid under the table. Um, and, it, and then Carr's got such a demeanor about him on the court where sometimes people question whether or not he's really engaged. Um, that's just because he's always calm. I feel like he's always calm and steady on the floor. He, I mean, he'll show emotion, don't get me wrong, but there's just just the way he plays. I think people sometimes uh, misconstrue really what his where his mind really is. So I was really just frustrated by so many people trying to say that he was either disengaged or he was already thinking about the pros or anything like that. I thought it was just a pretty typical bad shooting game for Tony Carr because he's had so many bad shooting games. This one was just particularly bad because he never made a shot until the fourth quarter. But in the meantime, he wasn't forcing the issue and he was still using Temple's defense to make his teammates better because they had Quentin Rose on him. And he would extend out to like 25 feet on him. Um, they would always throw a second defender at him. Um, and rather than trying to force through those two double teams, he was setting up his teammates. And if you look at the tape, he set up a lot of good shots for his teammates that his teammates did not hit. So, um, And a big part of that was I think we had some foul trouble too. So I think there's a lot of bench minutes. Um, you know, I actually just realized, I mean, we were talking about Nas Bostic. I didn't realize he scored 12 points on only four shots and that we got 22 bench points that game. That's probably like a season high, right? I feel like that kind of just went unnoticed. something like that. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that might have been just the, I, I don't know if motivated is the right word, but it's something like, something along those lines that I've seen Bostic. Like, he just looked like he wasn't doing the, for lack of a better word, dumb stuff that we kind of come to expect out of Nazir Bostic. And then Julian Moore, I, I mean, kind of like what Dan was talking about. He was a benefit. He benefited from the fact that the game was being called uh, really tightly. Six for six from the free throw line is just not something we really expect from him. But yeah. Shout out Pat Driscoll. Yeah. Busiest man in America. <laughs> is that a Rostinism? No, I just he does every game. It seems like yeah. he does like seventy five college games. Like, like you see anything in the mid Atlantic, he's he's doing it. Him, him or Steratore, which I don't think we've gotten Steratore yet during the NIT, but I could be wrong. I'm honestly NCAA games. I think that's something that I feel like we should try to keep track of and just monitor. That's like that's some good data about referees, just because I feel like everyone always complains about the referees, and and every, all of us are guilty of it. But it's honestly always like the same five to ten head guys that do our games like night in, night out. Like it was Bo Borowski the other night. Everyone's like uh, against Mar- Marquette. I mean, we'll talk about that game, obviously. But like Bo Borowski did that game and everyone's like, oh, we had a C-League officiating crew. It's like, no, these are all the, the big time officials in the NCAA's eyes that do all these games every night. So it's kind of like, you know, and everyone obviously knows DJ Carsonson. He's a tall, bald ref. Like you, you, you start to gain like TV Teddy. TV Teddy. Yeah, TV Teddy, thank God, is finally retiring. But um, is he retiring? But yeah, there's he's like, just not doing the tournament because Joel Berry's in it. Wasn't well, no, he he was like expecting to retire after the season, and then he used that to like quit early or whatever. I don't did that ever get resolved? I don't remember. But either way, but there's like yeah, like Pat Driscoll, Bo Borowski, um, DJ Carsonson, um, Lamont Simpson. Like there's there's like a solid like five to eight refs that I bet you have been the head. I don't know what you call that with basketball, the head crew chief or whatever. I don't know. Um, the head official. Um, we don't get a whole lot of variety in our refs. So I just feel like people always are like assuming that we have like just no name refs sometimes. And it's like, no, this, this is just kind of 
this is college basketball and how terrible its officiating is. So, yeah. so uh, the, be- the know, best that's, name that's by far is, is uh, Steve McJunkins, by by far. I don't know. I mean, I know that name. I don't, I'm trying. I don't. I can't put a face to Steve. You're, you're gonna take that. Or, you're gonna take that over Kip Kissinger. <laughs> I'm just looking at the Kempom box scores for all these Penn State games, and they list all the refs on there. Uh, Gene yeah. Steratore obviously has done multiple Penn State games. Like I don't know. I feel like we should track that next yeah, year. Yeah. So well, my, my my Villanova fan brother, who I've mentioned before, he'll always like if there's a Nova game on Saturday and a and a Penn State game on Sunday, and Driscoll's doing the game on Saturday, he'll text me there and it'll be like, I'll bet Driscoll's doing Penn State tomorrow. Like he he just does a lot of those. Like if he's in an area, he'll do he'll you know do like three or four in a row. Yeah. The the big thing from this segment is that Eric just volunteered to watch every game next year and document all the officials and any trends that might pop up from those games. So, thank you, Eric. Um, yeah, it's not hard. You just you just track the three names in the box score. <laughs> I'm not actually like going to track every goddamn call. What are you talking about? <laughs> what, what? Come on now, we don't need we don't need that kind of salty language here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Eric, you seemed like you wanted to touch on. We'll just mention really quickly. This might have been. Uh, this was an all-time great uh, Bryce Jordan center clock needs to be shot into the sun game. Uh, there were what like three stoppages in the first half or so. Like there was one within the first minute or two of the game that just seemed endless. Like I don't quite remember exactly what it was. Oh, uh, it was. I mean, with the whole offensive rebound going to twenty yeah, seconds. That's right. We knew that the BJC clocks would not be able to handle that. And, of course, the very first offensive rebound, it was completely botched. <laughs> like, I don't remember. It was like it, was, it wasn't even close. And, of course, like, the refs didn't realize it until, like, 10 seconds or so had run off because, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's the so first they, minute of the game. So they had to, like, but, check. It, that must have taken about five minutes. Like, it oh, was, yeah. It, it made it painful. Numbers, yeah. It was a brutal live experience. Nobody wants to sit there and waste their time. Um, it definitely caused some restlessness. I'm sure it probably did in the crowd too. Were you at that game, Bill? I was I at know. that game, but I think at that point I was just like sitting on the internet, getting off jokes about the BJC clock operations. So yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, was, we was, we have a we have a whole engineering school at this university, and you're telling me that we can't get like two guys or from that school to just fix the clock at the BJC. Well, I mean, like, that can't just be a project for them. Would like, it, be, it like, you know? Would it be the BJC without the crappy clock? Uh, no, is it the it, clock just, or the yeah. clock operator. I don't know who operates the clock, but I mean, there's yeah, literally, I don't know how much there's literally no it. qualification needed for <laughs> to be a clock operator. I've learned that. Yeah, and then the new rules, which uh, as Eric touched on, and Dan or Chad and Eric, if you want to add anything else, like it, it, it seemed like it took Penn State. Especially with the four quarters thing and new timeouts and all that, a little bit of time to get into the flow. Really, both teams get into the flow of the game. I mean, we had a, a twenty-eight to twenty-four first half. Like it, for the first, yeah, twenty maybe thirty some odd minutes, it, it just wasn't attractive basketball because it just seemed like everyone uh, was out of out of a rhythm over the course of the entire game. Anyone? Anything to add? No, yeah, no, honestly, man, nope. I, you know what? I'm, I'm still waiting for someone to challenge my Tony Carr take because I Dan, got. Dan, do you want to challenge his Tony Carr take? Nah, I don't feel like it. 
Okay, there we go. Uh, so <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I think the truth is some of the. I during the game, I was needling it pretty good, which I know is why Eric is bringing yes. it up. But that was more. That was more because I thought I, I was using it as a springboard for some jokes, uh, which you know it were speculating on where Tony's head might be at. But uh, you know, obviously, it's a. Uh, you know, I, I, I think he he's not wrong. I mean, he's, you know, when you have some of these, you know, really sharp passes, you know, end up in, you know, somebody botching the, you know, the, the finish on the play, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's obviously frustrating and, it, you know, it, it uh, make, makes it look uh, like he was less effective than he was. But also, I don't think that uh, Tony Carr is in a position to uh, express a lot of frustration about uh other teammates not uh, finishing around the rim. So, you know, it's a wash, basically. <laughs> I think the whole trope about a guy, like, thinking about his NBA future during a game is so, like, lazy. I don't know. Like, I mean, I've played basketball That was why before. I was getting like, a little more creative. I, I, was, I, was saying yeah. that he, I was saying that he was preparing to move out that same night, which was the, jo- the <laughs> yeah. theme of the jokes that I was making, that he had, like, a car running outside, and he needed to go, you know, he had movers waiting for him in the parking lot. So. Yeah, and I think I that was... That was the theme of mine. I just right, took yeah. that to... Well, just in general, people have said that on like on Twitter and stuff. It's like, come on, like, yeah. Let's say, Dan, like, you were not the like one person that I was frustrated with at all. (laughs) It was because you know, you know, not to take me too seriously unless I'm talking about both games. I also know you lose your crap over five games. In the in the in a chat format, I'm actually very pleasant to watch a game live with because I'm much less serious. I I'm I, I sort of vent a bit, but. I look forward to our next opportunity to watch a game together. <laughs> to New York next week, baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and We're skipping like two games here. No, no. Wait, hold on. Real quick. <laughs> the other thing I want to touch on with this Temple game, though, um, real quick, is um, I think – I forget who – I think somebody said this in the Slack or something, but I thought it was a really great point of that whole game was kind of like what has happened to Penn State in so many games before this year where – um, what if they were the underdog or what have you, that they would ugly up the game um, and then they would hold a lead for so long. And then when the time came to actually win the game, it was clear who won the game and showed that they were the better team. You know what I mean? And usually Penn State's always on the losing end of those situations where um, they're just able to limit some superior team so they can stay in the game, keep a close game, win ugly. And then all of a sudden this team's like, all right, well, this is fun. We're just going to go roll and and blow you out, and that's exactly what happened. And, and, and something I, I I still I'm realizing now, just talking about this, I haven't gone back and done. I wanted to go through and just log the stats of the, that two minute run where Penn State went on like a 12-0 run or something, because it was honestly I think the first time I've ever seen a Penn State basketball team win a game so decisively with all five guys on the court um, contributing multiple plays. And, and that's a credit for John Harris, especially, who um, has been starting in, in Watkins' absence. And he hasn't really been getting a lot of time. And we didn't really know. I think we talked about him on an earlier podcast. I mentioned how um, with Watkins' injury, I thought this would be a good litmus test to see um, if he can, be, if Harris can be a guy that can contribute 10 to 15 minutes off the bench next year behind Watkins. And uh, I remember how terrible he looked in that Nebraska game. And I was ready to like be like, we need to find somebody – as soon as the season over ended. Um, but he's flipped that script. I mean, he, he was pretty good in the Big Ten tournament, but um, his contributions down the stretch of that Temple game were huge. 
Um, and, and it really allowed all five guys to contribute. It started with a Josh Reese three and included Shep Garner three. Lamar Stevens had an assist and a monster block that saved them out of that timeout. Um, Tony Carr wasn't forcing shots. He actually um, set up that game, the go-ahead layup from John Hara with the hockey assist to the Stevens. Um, it was it was just honestly, I thought, I mean, I don't want to be overdramatic. It's the first time the NIT is Temple, ugly game. But that was something that I feel like went a little underappreciated just because you just never see that from Penn State basketball. That kind of co- composure um, for to watch the team just take command of a close game that had been so frustrating like that was was pretty pretty encouraging. I'm gonna say it was a growth moment. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that they they did show some composure. And I think that uh, on the subject of composure, you accusing me of not having composure during the uh, during watching games is pretty rich coming from the guy who tackled his team's star player. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that was after the game. That so, was a celebration. So we've spent like <laughs> okay, more games to play. That's fine. We, we've <laughs> that spent like 22 minutes talking about this Temple game. So uh, let's move on to Notre Dame. Uh, well, if somebody chose tr- to edit this, maybe we would we would it would be a little bit shorter. <laughs> oh God! I, I will only edit <laughs> things when I say things that could uh, hurt me in my professional life because I'll, I'll I'm bet you I bet you edit that hockey podcast, but this one no oh. it doesn't ever do it. I'm not editing the hockey. I'm editing the part of the hockey podcast where I hit record and I said, hey, guys, I'm recording right now. And that's, no, I'll keep that. I should keep that in. I think that'll add something. Neither here nor there. Penn State 73, Notre Dame 63. Uh, Going back and looking at that one, uh, Tony Carr, Josh Reeve, Shep Garner, uh, 24 points, 18 points, 15 points, respectively. It was the... Second of three games that John Hara has had during the NIT where he has gone one for three from the field. Uh, Chad, I'll start with you. Just it, it seemed, I don't know what it was, but I don't think there was ever a time during this game where I felt like Penn State was going to lose. What, what about you? No, they were in control for most of it. Um, well, they, were, they went wire to wire, actually. So, um, yeah, it was never... There were some points where Notre Dame seemed like they were making a comeback. And, you know, being on, at Notre Dame's home court on St. Patrick's Day, wearing the green uniforms, you thought, okay, well, maybe this will turn around. Penn State's collapsed before. But, no, I mean, Penn State really... Um, they got to the line against Notre Dame, and it does not foul. Like, well, they were, I think they were third in the country and least number of fouls committed coming to that game. Um, and they just, they just played lights out. I mean, their defense too is something that we should talk about. I feel like, because they, I think just the, the schematics of it, like the way they switch on every single screen. And that's such a screen heavy offense. I don't think Notre Dame's really seen it that much this year. Um, and the way Penn state can switch like one through five, maybe like, you know, maybe not one through five everywhere, you know, John, John Hara can't guard point guards and Shep can't guard centers. But aside from that, I mean, the, the athleticism is really on display there for Penn state that they can just shut down two guards who were, or, I mean, Matt Farrell has had a fantastic career in Notre Dame. Uh, TJ Gibbs is well on his way to, to another fantastic, uh, you know, he's been, a, he's another, another be a, a great Notre Dame guard there. Um, Fonzie Colson, obviously the, the injury is unfortunate. It, it stinks because he was, he was having a nice night and he's had such a brilliant career there. Um, but, I mean, they, they really just played their butts off on defense. And, um, again, that, that carried them to a win. I mean, holding Notre Dame under one point per possession at Notre Dame is, is something to hang your hat on, I feel like. So, 
Um, yeah, and overall, I mean, they made plays on the stretch. Carr got his his mojo back, hit a, hit a dagger three to to kill it. Um, went to the line twelve times. Um, that's that's the perfect performance from Tony Carr. That's that's what you expect from him at this stage in his career. And he's you know that game he delivered. He delivered against Marquette. Um, you know, if he keeps playing like that, I see no reason why Penn State can't win the whole NIT. Yeah, and Eric, well, kind of going off of that point, uh, Penn State just it walked into the gym of a team that a lot of people thought had a case, a really strong case for being a tournament team. And but based on seeding, they would have been the last team out of the uh, tournament, no? Or does the NIT they just take the top four? Uh, the first four and just put them all in a uh, at once. You know, honestly, who knows? Yeah, who but, knows? But no one ever asked. No, they were the first team the process. They, they was, were official. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, yeah, this is. A yeah, Notre- they said that on Selection Sunday mm-hmm. that they were the okay. first team out. But yeah, this is a Notre Dame team that you can make a very, 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 very strong case, even if you go beyond that, should have been in the NCAA tournament with a player. Uh, you know, looking at Bonzi Colson, a guy who. Coming into this year, he was a national play, someone who got a little bit of buzz for national player of the year. Not a ton, but a little bit. Th- this performance shows me, again, to go off of what Chad said, that on Penn State's good days, it can beat anyone, it can win the NIT, and it can give you a whole hell of a lot of optimism about this team uh, going into next season, assuming everybody comes back and you know, we'll, we'll talk about that later probably. Yeah, no, I mean, so like what, like really what you're trying to say is that this is a preseason top 25 team that never was that preseason top five team ever since Bonzi Colson's injury back, like in the middle of December or whenever it was, um, they lost, they went on this seven game losing streak without him in the ACC that kind of derailed their season. But this was a team, you know, Bonzi Colson and Matt Farrell have been kind of like college basketball staples with Notre Dame, like the last two or three years, um, so with both of them and then TJ Gibbs, you know, that's a, that's a formidable team right there. And then all the hype towards the end of the season about when they're finally healthy, Bonzi Colson comes back. That's why so many people were pushing them to go into the tournament because so many people thought that, you know, this is the top 25 team that was supposed to be here the whole year, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to like, you know, the NIT is, you know, I, I don't really know how to describe the NIT. I, I just, you know, it's not something you're ever going to talk to your friends about. It's not something you're ever going to champion as far as, yo, we won the NIT, blah, 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 blah. But this is exactly what the positives of the tournament is. I mean, this is a road game at um, what you can consider a hostile venue because it was St. Patrick's Day. I mean, you would assume the Fighting Irish, yeah, it was a noon tip-off, but I'm sure there was plenty of Irish coffees beforehand, Um that kind of thing. There's got to be some buzz with St. Patrick's Day on Notre Dame's campus, I would assume. Um, and, and Penn State went in there and and they they beat them, and they did it without Mike Watkins. They did it with John Hara playing 23 minutes and contributing um, a lot again, especially on the glass. So that there's, I don't think there's any shame about that win. I don't think you can discredit that win at all. I think some people might always try to say that players don't care about the NIT. I think that's bogus, especially seniors. You know, you saw Bonzi Colson get hurt there in the third quarter, and then he's, like, crying on the bench. You know, that's a guy that doesn't look to me like he was loafing on the court um, or that kind of thing. Uh, I think that's a lot of – I think a lot of that stuff kind of 
is definitely in players' minds like leading up to the game. But once you actually tip the ball and you're out in the court and you're you're playing at a high level, you know, usually your your competitive instincts take over. So I don't think there's anything wrong or anything that you can discredit with that win. Um, and considering that up until that point, Penn State had really only beaten one quality team in Ohio State. Um, you know, that's that's arguably their second or third best win of the season. Um, just by the way that they played and, and who they beat and, and that kind of thing. I mean, if anyone just basically what I'm saying is if anyone says that win doesn't mean anything because it's the NIT, you can get out of here. Yeah, Dan, do you want to uh, say anything based on that? Sorry, I was eating. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought your question was going to be a little longer. It usually what do you is. Um, I'm still on those pita chips, but um, <laughs> um, I, I agree. I think I, I, I've contended other things about the NIT, and I think it's it's for really for the fans that it, I think it matters a great deal less. I think Eric's right that the players. I don't. I don't question their motivation on it. It's more of a fan thing. I actually remember there was a photo of me on Facebook from like my freshman year of college, which my freshman year was 2009, 2010. So this is the year after the NIT championship for Penn State. And I had a friend who went to uh, University of Texas who saw a photo of me, and there was an NIT champions poster in the background. <laughs> and he he just messaged me. He just said, "That's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> yeah, you know, just it's you know it's it's more of a fan thing I think than a player thing. And you know I understand fans who sort of get checked out when it comes to that. But I think Eric's right that you know players you know this matters a great deal. You get an opportunity to go to New York, play at MSG, you get an opportunity to go out on top. Um, you know, it's not a national championship, but it's certainly, uh, you know, these guys are, you know, they, a lot of these guys played in AAU ball, you know, there's not a, you know, a, a state championship kind of thing. That's quite the same thing, the way that we sort of esteem it, you know, they're used to playing in different tournaments and things like that. And there's a lot of different titles that you can win a, over the course of a year. So I think for these guys, you know, it's, it's just like that, you know, it's, it, this is a tournament, you're playing good quality teams, you, your competitive spirit gets up for it. Yeah. And for a team like uh, a, a team like Penn State with a lot of young guys that we assume are going to be coming back next year, this, it's a chance to grow. And for, for the Shep Gardners and the Julian Moores, uh, they don't want their season to end. And I think we saw out of Shep really over the last two games that he just doesn't want this season to end. I mean, what was he? he was four for ten from three against Notre Dame. He was. Uh, five for eight against Marquette. Uh, it, it, it's been fun, which I did not expect. Even if Penn State went on a run, I feel like I'd have that voice in the back of my head saying, it's the NIT, stupid, why are you enjoying this? But no, it's been legitimately fun watching uh, watching this game and watching this team over the last few games. Is uh, anything else that... I, I suppose we should probably talk a little bit about Josh having... 18 to nine with uh, three steals and three assists. So anyone want to say anything on that? It was good. I agree. Let's talk about yeah, no, that. It was, it's <laughs> huge that he bounced back from the big 10 tournament though. Cause he definitely like, that's a huge turnaround from his play in the big 10 tournament in a short period of time. And without him, they don't win either of those first two games. For sure. Uh, 
I, I want to move on and talk about Marquette mostly because I want Dan to talk about Steve Wojciechowski. So, uh, Dan, feel free to say whatever you would like to say about him. Well, um, he's, you know, I'd say the reason um, that Marquette's players don't slap the floor themselves is because Wojo would probably complain that they're not doing it right every time they try to do it. <laughs> and, you know, he's, I'm sure, you know, in a restaurant right now, uh, sending the food back, uh, complaining about that as well. Um, and, you know, I'm it, it, better that than him, you know, being, uh, you know, preparing for uh, the next game because Penn State uh, kicked his ass. And, uh, and they're incredibly... Uh, you know, cue taking fans who just sort of, you know, went, went exactly with whatever he was doing. And for some, un, un, God knows why ESPN decided to crank the volume to the max on the crowd mic. So <laughs> to the point where their own announcers were getting drowned out on the broadcast the whole time, it was an extremely irritating uh, thing to watch, which I was warned, I must say, um, my, I've met, I continue to mention my Villanova fan brother. He, you know, he's obviously a fan of Big East basketball, and he texted me several times in, in the lead up to the game, saying they're not that good, but they will be as frustrating to watch as an opponent uh, as any team that you know you that was good and you were losing to, and uh, they were as advertised. Not just, and it was you know a mixture of everything in terms of their style of play, uh, and in terms of Wojo just feeling like he's, uh, you know, up on a cross the entirety of the game and uh, and the fans. So really just uh, uh, it's extremely satisfying to have uh, beaten that team. I agree. Uh, Eric, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, take a victory lap because you nailed the point total. Uh, you were one – Penn State scored one more point than you expected. Marquette won fewer. Uh, and you also said, uh, not in your preview, but – you said among your uh, among your friends that if Penn State was going to win, it was going to be because Lamar Stevens had a big night, tied his career high with 30 points. So if you would like to take a victory lap, by all means, go for it. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't really, I mean, the score prediction, you know, blind nut or blind squirrel finds a nut, whatever. But predicting that good <laughs> Lamar would come out, though, that's a much harder prediction. So, um, I mean, it, it, it really wasn't much prediction. Everyone knew Mark had didn't play defense. I mean... Um, it, it was just funny how um, I just enjoyed how I said like they needed to produce like the Texas A&M game where they scored 57 points and then they went out and pretty much did exactly that. So, um, you know, it wasn't too surprising. I'm not going to take a, a much of I, I mean, I sent out a tweet today, which I don't usually do when I uh, predict things correctly, but I uh, thought that one was a little too accurate to just let go unnoticed. Yeah. So, so, yeah, uh, talk about Lamar. Yeah, no, he, I mean, so yeah, Marquette had nobody that could guard him. Their uh, their foreman is Sam Hauser, who is a freshman from Wisconsin. I think he's a freshman from Wisconsin. Um, and I didn't realize this heading into the game, but apparently he's been dealing with some kind of hip injury um, all year that has kind of just, like, gotten worse throughout the year, and he's about to get surgery, and he's going to be out he, for, like, five months or something. He's a sophomore. Continue. Sophomore, okay. So, um, so the fact that, you know, Marquette's one guy, one probably already was not, couldn't match uh, Stevens' athleticism at full health, then it was also hurting. So he was the guy that was pretty much trying to guard Stevens and, and couldn't, and then Stevens would get switched off. Um, and, and Stevens finally did what we um, 
But we always wanted to see. Like he, he's just so much better when he works inside out versus when he starts and he comes out and he starts chucking up threes. You can kind of always tell um, if he gets a couple of paint touches early and finds success early in the paint, that almost always leads to good things. And I have no problem with him trying to expand his game out to the three-point line at that rate, at that point. Um, I, you know, I think you got to give Chambers a lot of credit um, for this this game plan. Um, again, now you don't want to go too hard because you, you do got to admit that Marquette literally plays no defense. But, um, <laughs> you know, the sets that they were running for Stevens were fantastic. They were getting, the, getting him the ball um, off some down screens and some curl cuts. And they were getting him the ball within 10, 15 feet where he is usually very good. And he dominated. Um, scored 14 baskets. I mean, honestly, I was like, yeah, that's got to be like a single game record or something. But I, I looked it up. And, of course, like Jesse Arnell's got like a game with 20 made baskets or something back in the 50s. But 14 made baskets, though, has got to be I, – I, I, I'm not sure how many Penn State players have actually made 14 field goals in a game. I can't. I can't recall. Usually when Penn State has a high-scoring game like that, it's Taylor Battle, Joe Crispin, or Tony Carp putting up five threes and shooting a bunch of free throws or something. Um, Lamar scored pretty much all of his points from the floor on all those field goals. So um, it was awesome. It was great. I mean, he Lamar's kind of is always up and down, but this was a game he, he absolutely had a matchup advantage. He absolutely took advantage of that um, and, and played, played beautifully. Yeah, the best was at... Uh, you know, the end of the game, Marquette's trying to put together that final push. And then Penn State just runs the exact same play, throwing a lob to uh, Lamar at the rim. And one of them he grabs and he lays it in. The other one he just throws down. Like It, it really was jarring watching how Marquette's favorite defense was basically let's have them make a shot so we can give Andrew Rousey the ball up the court and he could hoist up a three. It was awesome. Like It was fun in a very stupid basketball way, but... Yeah, whatever. Uh, the, the other big thing for me, uh, and Chad, uh, I want you to kind of expand on this a little bit if you want, was with Tony, he had as specific of a uh, matchup advantage as he can. Uh, Marquette's backcourt is 5'11 and 5'11. Looking at Tony, he took 12 twos and three threes. He wasn't settling for jumpers. He was making it a point to either take guys to the rim or post them up or whatever he had to do to get shots of the rim because he was just six or seven inches taller than both of them. Yeah, generally I think he tries to get to the rim when he can. Um, you know, he doesn't always have the, the size advantage against both backcourt backcourt players uh, like he did against Marquette. Um, but, you know, he recognized that, took advantage. 7-12 from two, that's exactly the kind of line you want from a guy who's 6'5". And, and playing on the ball so much, you know, 11 free throws, obviously, like that's that's what his game ideally should be getting to the rim or at least getting to the mid-range against smaller smaller guards and getting to the line. Um, seven assists, too, like you really six rebounds. You can't ask for much more out of Tony in a game like that. Um, you know, he's really it, it took him and Lamar a, a little bit longer than we thought maybe to, to mature and and you know, play to their strengths, but it seems like now they're really focused in and, and, and knowing what they're supposed to be doing and what kind of what their games um, are predicated on to, to help them succeed. So, yeah, a, a really strong night from Tony and Lamar. Um, Shep also, obviously, five threes. I mean, he was 
he was in prime shut mode the way he bombed some of those shots in from from three in transition and um you know that that was uh, it was really just a fun game especially in front of that raucous crowd of like three thousand people of capacity so yeah fun night overall for sure um any other big takeaways from this game that you guys want to talk about before we give the most half-assed preview of Mississippi State that the internet has ever heard? Yeah, um, yeah real quick, Dan, I'll just sneak this in. Uh, Josh Reeves did absolutely nothing and was in foul trouble the whole game, and they didn't have Mike Watkins, and they beat a Big East team on the road pretty handily. Like, I think that's impressive. Go ahead, Dan. Well, they, they got good bench contributions, like when Davis Zemgolis fumbled the ball in <laughs> Lamar Stevens' general direction, and he hit an 18-footer with the shot clock expiring. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Da- oh, Davis had a four trillion. I didn't realize that. Go him. Uh, he didn't get an assist for that. That's an outrage. I- <laughs> it kind of is. That, that was a home call from Marquette. Yeah. Well, yeah. scorekeepers there. He yeah. Uh, impressive. Uh, very hardworking four minutes out of Davis Angulas. So, uh, can we yeah. talk about Jamari a little bit? Yeah. Sure. I mean it. 0 for 1 from the field, no points, two Yeah, fields. not so much. I mean, well, just the last. turnovers. Like, yeah, just the last, like, I don't know, 10, 15 games or so. Um, his, it seems like his confidence is, is just shaking a little bit. He, like, some routine passes are off a little bit. Um, he's getting to the rim sometimes. Um, he's not really shooting as much as he did before, which yeah. maybe he's a blessing, maybe not. But he just seems like he needs an offseason to get his feet underneath him again. and. Yeah get some confidence built up like in practice or whatever. Cause he's, yeah. The, yeah. I thought he actually had some, po- he had some positive contributions he though. Did, actually, yeah. in that oh, game. Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually I'm like looking at his game log. He played 20 minutes. That's the most minutes he's played since January 15th. Um, so, and, and, and he was frustrating the hell out of them in the backcourt. Yeah. Uh, got a couple of steals and just from, what was that? There was that one where like, again, he just pulled this steal when everyone is running down the court, like because it was a change of possession, and then he's just holding the ball for like an extra ten seconds, waiting for everybody else to come back down the court to have an offensive possession again. I, for, I mean, that's yeah, just what he does. Defensively, yeah. well, he's no, all there still. Well, but, I mean, yeah. the problem with him defensively, though, the last month is he he just he doesn't stay in front of his man because he's too busy going for steals mm-hmm. his, and gambling for steals. There, his thing is what. It, it, it reminds me of a few years ago with uh, Tony Allen in the NBA. Tony Allen had the reputation for being such a really great defender, but his thing he will get lost on things like screen and rolls. There will be times where he just gets blown by because he's trying to force the turnover, and he's good at that stuff. Like I'm there as long as the other team's not hitting shots, I'm not like bugged out by it. But these are all things that he'll get better at as he plays more basketball and he learns like you know, pick your spots a little bit better. I mean, offensively, he's a much different story because he seems like he's actively opposed to the concept of shooting a basketball. But, I, I mean, he's go- he grabbed two offensive rebounds against Marquette. I'm, my guess is he probably had a few against uh, probably had a few against Notre Dame and Temple. Like, he wants to get in there and fight. It's just a matter of, like you mentioned, Chad, it's build that confidence back up and get to a point where he is uh, no longer making the freshman mistakes that you should probably, we should probably expect out of a guy like him. Yeah, he'll get back. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. It just seems like um, either needs some, needs a three to fall or, or a shot to go in that a tough shot or something to fall. But um, yeah, he'll, he'll be fine in the long run. I think it's just, you know, hitting the freshman wall and maybe not 
getting. No, he's got a lot of responsibilities as backup point guard, so I'm not sweating it too much. Yeah, I mean, there, there's pl- there's plenty of precedent of guys who are too aggressive in trying to steal early in their careers and then, you know, going on to be successful. Take Doug Gottlieb. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. If you, if you want to tweet this pod at Doug Gottlieb and just say, like, yo, dude, we mentioned. You got a shout out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, better Doug Gut. Well, is it better that we shouted out him before we do our weekly Eric Garland shout out, or is it unfortunate that we're just not? Just let able it to happen naturally, man. Okay. The, well, no, yeah. we'll get we'll get into it a little bit. We'll get into. I mean, it's not weekly. It, it, it has to happen the way, the way that it has to happen. Chad's right. Let it go. Okay, fine. Listen, I I'm a big fan of. And we'll we're talking about recruiting in a minute anyway. Uh, Mississippi State. Does anyone have anything they would like to say? about Mississippi State basketballs. Penn State plays them in the semifinals of the NIT in Madison Square Garden on Tuesday evening. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I just wanted to point out real quick, John Hara had nine rebounds right? in 22 minutes against Marquette. Yeah. We can't forget about that. Yeah. I mean, for a freshman who's played, like, no minutes all year, um, I'm pretty excited the fact that he doesn't look terrible <laughs> down the stretch here. I realize that's a low bar, but... Yeah. He's but, like, a large honestly, boy. He... he I mean, he looks like he's going to be very comfortable in his role throughout his career. And I don't know if he's ever going to win Penn state, any basketball games, but I know for sure he's not going to lose them any basketball. He's just like a good guy to have around as a, as a bench player. I don't think he's ever going to be like a starter. If we can find somebody else, but man depth that we've always Mm -hmm. wanted. And, 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 you know, he's obviously got his limitations. He can't jump. Um, and, and he's not going to ever be a dominant post presence. Maybe I mean I don't know. Maybe he does down the line. I mm. I don't know. But obviously he's not that right now. But um, you know I think the the way Chambers always phrases it is being all stars in your role or whatever. And I think that absolutely is fitting him uh, perfectly because he's been yeah. killing the offensive glass um, ever since he's been getting more time. I he think he's going to he's going to get to the point now where uh, announcers are going to pronounce his name correctly, which is the really the <laughs> level you want to get to when you have a typo in your own name. And uh, you know, you know, some people have never get there, like uh, Kosa Mataway Bonham, but um, you know, well, for, for some off. reason, for some reason, Shep Garner. But you know, <laughs> is there anybody calls him Gardner? I don't know why, but yeah, John Harris fought. Did it? Didn't Taylor Battle like? I'm trying to think of like what other name mispronunciations there have been because there have been a lot over the years. I feel like Taylor nobody, Battle. Had nobody one called him Talor, did they? Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why. Like, that's why I'm like. I feel like I feel like Sasha Barovniak may have had some trouble for some people. Right? Oh, did Don, did Donovan Jack ever get Donovan? Mm. I don't think so. No, although although Damn. Patrick had my favorite nickname for him, which was Dono. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going, yeah. I'll do this later. Uh, Mississippi State, they're a basketball team. They play basketball. Uh, yeah, whatever. I hope Penn State beats them. Anybody else have anything to add? Ken Balland. Hell yeah. Uh, so with that, we're done previewing Mississippi State. Um, yeah, honestly, i got to be honest. I don't really know a whole lot about no. them other than the Weatherspoon brothers and the fact that they're coached by Ben Howland. Yeah. And they have Abdul Adu, who was a former... Penn State, uh, big man recruit back in the day, but Penn State was never really much of a threat in that recruitment. Um, and their and their president is Mark E. Keenum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. But yeah, I know more about Joe Moorhead than I knew about the Mississippi State basketball team. Oh, and yeah. you don't even really follow football that much, though. So. I know. That's that's the point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the the good news is that it well, Rick Stansberry ended up winning uh, his semifinal game, so we could potentially have Pat Chambers against Rick Stansberry in the NIT finals, which would be fun. Uh, Three four seeds in the NIT finals. Yeah. Got to beat Stanberry's former employer for sure. Do that. Yeah, one game at a time. Uh, so yeah, watch that game because we're going to be doing it. It will be fun. Uh, do you guys want to talk about how Pitt's imploding right now? I don't know. I'm hesitant to say anything because what if they get Dan Hurley? Yeah, I mean that's true. In fairness, <laughs> don't, Dan don't Hurley is a game changer. <laughs> All right, so I mean, what we but. will talk about instead, and Eric, uh, I will let you take the reins on this one, is that uh, one thing that we can for sure say about Pitt is that it's going to have a completely different roster next year uh, because they have, they've had something like again. nine guys. Again, yes. Because they've had something like nine guys announce their uh, intent to transfer. Uh, is there a way for Penn State to take advantage of this, whether it's uh, by going back and looking at some old connections it had with guys that are currently on Pitt's roster, or were currently on Pitt's roster, recruiting, uh, anything like that. Yeah, well, honestly, man, I think talking about the whole Pittsburgh situation as a whole is a, is a great analogy just for um, college basketball in general today, as far as, you know, everyone always just assumes you go out and hire a big-name coach, you start winning games, start getting recruits, and that's how everything works, and, and sometimes that, that doesn't work that way. Um, you know, just kind of like what the Pitt basketball program has undergone the last two years, ever since um, Jamie Dixon was trended down, just it's kind of crazy to me. Um, I, I talked to some Pitt fans, uh, and they all still stand by the fact that they thought that Jamie Dixon needed to go. Um, you know, Dixon, I, I, I forget how many straight years he went to the tournament or anything like that, but he was relevant every year um, going in there until they went to the ACC. And then, then this program definitely dipped a little bit back. Um, they lost some recruiting momentum, and they weren't really, you know, the knock on Jamie Dixon obviously was always that he would never really make a deep run into the tournament. Um, you know, never made a Final Four when they were um, a top five, top ten Big East program back in the Big East heyday of ten years ago or whatever. Um, and, and the fan base clearly kind of that patience of always being let down in, in March kind of evaporated and they all wanted to run them out of town and they ended up running them out of town to TCU, um, where TCU's programs kind of like a Penn state program has been completely irrelevant for so long. And in two years, Jamie Dixon's already in the NCAA tournament with TCU while Pitt's fallen off a cliff. Now, part of that's because Pitt, after they ran Jamie Dixon at a time, made a pretty terrible hire with Kevin Stallings. Um, I, I, you know, the, the athletic director that made that hire is no longer at Pitt. Um, you know, that, that whole hire was kind of screwed from the get-go. As soon as he walked into that situation, um, he had very little chance just because of how poorly received he was by the fan base. Um, and he was inheriting a senior-laden team that didn't have a point guard. So it was like, you should be pretty good, but you don't have a point guard. But then you're going to have to replace all these guys in your first year. Um, and he didn't really have a great recruiting year his first year. So as soon as as soon as soon that happened, like you could tell that this, this 0-19 season was coming um, back during his first year. Because that team that had all those seniors only went 4-14 in the ACC or whatever. Not that that team was like really great or anything, but that team had talent to be like a 500 
level ACC team, you know, once they underachieved like that, then obviously, you know, players transferred, had to completely change over the roster. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's pretty funny how, like, the players have such a better perspective about their prospects for this season or not. I mean, it, it seems like somehow those players have been able to keep somewhat of a positive attitude for going 0-19. I mean, I've seen some really awful Penn State basketball teams. You know, I'm talking end of Jerry Dunn era here. And the culture within the program was just so toxic. It was like, I could, you couldn't even believe that they would even, like, field a team. Um, you know, people with bags over their heads at the games, which I believe was also happening at Pitt. Um, you know, it's, it's a terrible situation. And usually it's very hard for players, college-age kids, to stay engaged when you have that little hope. But for whatever reason, it sounds like, you know, with these players' reactions ever since Kevin Stallings has been, been terminated um, has been pretty... Uh, pretty wild because a lot of them have rallied around him. They've all gone and asked for their release. Um, they all feel like they, they pretty much all came out and said like, yo, we're just a bunch of freshmen. We knew we were going to win this year. Um, you know, we feel like, you know, we made strides and that we could be better down the road. Cause honestly they did kind of improve. They almost pulled off some wins there towards the end of the year. Um, but yeah, so now we, as far as like the open season on their roster right now though, um, it's, it all depends on who they hire because like Chad was saying in the beginning of this, if, if they hire Dan Hurley, there's a good chance a lot of those kids are going to want to return to Pitt. Um, and frankly, it might be one of the situations where does, does Dan Hurley even like want to bring them back to Pitt, I guess, you know what I mean? The tables could, Dan Hurley's the kind of name that would unfortunately change the, change the narrative of Pitt basketball right now, where it would go from just being a toxic dump to actually being a destination for kids because Hurley just has that reputation and has been so successful recently. He's just the hot name. Um, but if they don't get Dan Hurley, who's considering Pitt and UConn or going back to U, uh, Rhode Island, um, I don't know who they're going to get. And if they get some guy from the low or mid-major ranks, I do think all those kids will will go through the recruiting process again, which would be good news for Penn State because um, you know it's going to be interesting to see here uh, with transfer season coming and um, decommitments coming, all that's kind of starting to happen you know, this week and next week uh, with so many team seasons ending. Um, we'll, we'll get to see who's available. But at the same time, we don't really know what Penn State scholarship situation is like. Um, we, we, we know that some we all are assuming some players are going to leave early. Obviously, the big question for Penn State is, does Tony Carr leave early? Um there's also some bench players that could be eligible for graduate transfers. You know, that would open up some scholarships. Obviously, we experienced that last year. Last year with the three guys who left, we could experience that again this year. Um, so so as far as, like, you know, recruiting and stuff, I'm, I'm still trying to be a little bit patient just because I don't feel like we have a good handle on what the actual situation is for Penn State. Um, but as far as who's available from Pitt, obviously Ryan Luther would be a grad transfer. Um, he could, I mean, he would be obviously like ideal, but he's going to be a lot harder to get. He's going to be in, in demand. He's a, um, a 14 and seven guy, I believe, or a 13 and seven guy in the ACC senior. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what his, that kid's feelings is are, are towards Penn state. I mean, he's from the Pittsburgh area. So, you know what I mean? He could be from like a Pitt family who just absolutely despises Penn state and will never consider, um, coming here. Who knows? Uh, I feel like Penn State tried to recruit him before he committed to Penn, uh, committed to Pitt, but I remember Jamie Dixon offered him kind of early, um, and he accepted that offer kind of like right away. So he seems kind of like a hometown Pitt fan. So I don't know how much of an option he'll be for Penn State, but who is an option for Penn State is their recruit 
uh, Bryce Golden, uh, who Penn State recruited before, played with Miles Dredd on Team Takeover. It's from the Maryland area. i got to be honest, I don't remember what city or school he goes to. Uh, but he's like a 6'7", 6'8", four-man uh, physical guy who can rebound but also can step out and shoot it. And obviously Penn State really has been hurting for depth behind Watkins and Stevens. Um, you know, Golden would kind of be a perfect guy that you can fit behind them to play like 10 minutes a year or so, hopefully. I mean, I mean, he's a freshman. He's not a four-star recruit. Um, so, you know, you, you don't want to sit here, bestow these ridiculous expectations on a guy who we don't even know if he's considering Penn State still or not, but I'm assuming he's going to just because of the Miles Dredd connection and, and Penn State recruited him so heavily before he committed to Pitt. Um, you know, I think he would be a, a really good player, but we'll see. Like, I mean, I think, you know, we're at the point now with the way Penn State's ending the season and the buzz they're generating, I think we can kind of maybe potentially aim our sights a little bit higher if, um, better players are available. Well, you know and I and I think I think you know I think you make some good points there, but there's a there's a bit of a precedent for this situation. I think we can compare it to now. If you recall a situation in Pittsburgh where there was a little bit of turnover and some people were available, and uh, you know Pat Chambers was able to you know bring in uh, somebody that he wanted from the Pittsburgh area. Uh, so if you're if you're tracking with me. Assistant coach Kevin Stallings. <laughs> we got Jim Ferry from Duquesne. We got Kevin Stallings now, and then we're just an Andrew Tool away from what they call the Pittsburgh trifecta. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in a in a sick way, I would be very much into Kevin Stallings becoming the next uh, re- replacing Jim Ferry if Jim Ferry go get goes and gets some like small. Oh no no no! This is uh this is oh, for just... him to be a director of basketball operations. Oh okay yeah, <laughs> I'm totally fine with uh, Dobo Kevin. In, in, in this in this scenario, Ross Condon has been hired as uh, assistant head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. <laughs> I believe Kevin Stallings is uh, retiring. That's the word. Is That's he? what I saw. Yeah, he's pretty old. He's like in his mid fifties. Is he? That's it? Yeah. No. Yeah, Kevin He's aging Stallings. like Phil Martelli. Kevin Stallings is 57 no. years old. No way. October 1st, 1960. You're kidding me. All right. Well, well no, because I remember when like Mark Schmidt's name came up, a lot of pe- people noted that Mark Schmidt now was the same age that Kevin Stallings was when Kevin Stallings got hired at Pitt. So, yeah. Kevin, Kevin Stallings is uh, he's still a very young dude who I think is a really great head coaching career ahead of him once he lands on his feet somewhere. You better start hitting the stalling button on that aging process. Man, alive. Hey-o. Hey-o. All right. Uh, so anything else you guys want to talk about? Uh, we want to talk about Tolu? Yeah, sure. Uh, Tolu Jacobs, Penn State's uh, center recruit in the class of 2018, uh, announced he was decommitting from Penn State. Uh, Chad... Does that mean anything? Uh, good thing, bad thing, whatever. Well, he uh, didn't sign in the uh, fall signing period, um, so this was it was kind of rumored for a little bit that he wasn't uh, going to end up in the class. So it's not terribly surprising. I think he tweeted it out at like three in the morning local time too. So um, yeah, I mean, kind of a little bit, maybe a little bit of a surprise to wake up to, and this early in the process, but. Um, you know, Penn State 
is still in need of a big man. Um, he was kind of, se- kind of seen as a project. He probably would have taken a red shirt um, next year if Watkins was was going to be back. So um, they have more room to play with now, more scholarship, another scholarship to play with, with uh, maybe with Bryce Golden or another um, player on the market or even a, uh, a, some kind of transfer perhaps. So just gives them a little more flexibility. And um, yeah, so uh, Dan, we called you in here for that. What were, uh, what were you doing? that we took you away from to talk about Tolu, by the way. Oh, for this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, at the hospital for the birth of my son. What's that? What's, what's his name going to be? Your son? Tolu. Tolu. <laughs> <laughs> thought you would go for tofu just to switch it up. Well, now now we've got a bit of egg on our face over this whole name thing. We, we, and it, it's too late. It's already on the birth certificate, according to my to – the, to the, oh, it's, it's, it's bad news. But, you know, I, I got a picture texted to me, so I guess that makes up for it. But, you know, we had, we had to pod. All right. We can end it now. We did? All right. Uh, We're good. All right. Uh, bye. <laughs>